Support for Rewrite Radio comes from the Fetzer Institute, helping build the spiritual foundation for a loving world. Fetzer envisions a world that embraces love as a guiding principle and animating force for our lives. The powerful love that helps us live in sacred relationship with ourselves, others, and the natural world. Learn more by visiting Fetzer.org. The Power of Names, The Many Paths to Poetry and Playwriting and the Creative Life. A conversation with Afa Michael Weaver on this week's Rewrite Radio. You are here. This is is Rewrite Radio. Radio, This is Rewrite Radio. This is Rewrite Radio. Thank you all for coming. It's what makes us more human because it connects us. Just look. Look at this world. A podcast from the Festival of Faith and Writing. I'm Lauren Cole, a junior at Calvin College and a student fellow at the Calvin Center for Faith and Writing. On today's Rewrite Radio, independent scholar Serena Groover-Moore talks with author Afa Michael Weaver about how his journey took him from factory work to a Fulbright and ultimately to an established writing career and the spiritual practices that helped him along the way. Afa M. Weaver is a poet, short story writer, playwright, and editor. You need to listen to this episode to learn his whole story, but spoiler alert, In 1985, Weaver published his first collection of poetry, Water Song, received a National Endowment for the Arts Fellowship for Poetry, and attended Brown University's graduate writing program on a fellowship. Weaver has gone on to publish 10 poetry collections, including Multitudes, The Ten Lights of God, and City of Eternal Spring. As a playwright, Weaver wrote Rosa, which was produced at the Venture Theater in Philadelphia. He edited the collection These Hands I Know, African American Writers on Family, and his short fiction appears in a number of anthologies, including Children of the Night. Weaver has received many accolades, including the Kingsley Tufts Poetry Award, a Fulbright Scholar appointment, and a fellowship from the Pew Foundation. In addition to teaching at the National Taiwan University and Taipei National University of the Arts on his Fulbright, Weaver held the Alumni Endowed Chair at Simmons College. He remains a member of the core faculty in the Drew MFA program in Poetry and Poetry in Translation. His papers are held in the Howard Gottlieb Archival Research Center at Boston University. Here's Afa Michael Weaver with Serena Groover Moore at the 2018 Festival of Faith and Writing. Thank you. So I was wondering if you would give us uh, an introduction to all of your names and how you acquired them and uh, what they mean to you. Well, when I was born, my, my parents named me Michael Sean Weaver. And uh, in 1997, I took the uh, African name Afa, um, given to me by Tess Onweme, who's from the Igbo culture in Nigeria which means Oracle, Afa, and um, the middle name became Michael. In Chinese, um, my name was given to me by my godfather, who's a professor emeritus at National Taiwan University, Mr. Qingxing Peng, Peng Qingxi. And uh, that name is Hui Yafeng. And so the Hui is, actually a surname and uh, a family name. And the Ya is related to the character for elegance or tooth, the tooth uh, char- uh, character, and then Feng is wind. So the translation is someone who has the air of a poet. Hmm. And the Ya Feng is taken from the Ya Fue section of the Book of Songs, the first anthology of 
the ancient book of Chinese poetry. So the short version of that is Yafeng. So sometimes I call me Yafeng. And um, my Tai Chi teacher um, made me one of his disciples, and my disciple name is Yuanya, that same character for in, inside the Chinese name. So every disciple has uh, Yuan, is, uh, which means first, means first generation after your teacher. So, and my, fa uh, my father um, was not able to pronounce Wei Ya Feng, so he said, where are you from? And, uh, <laughs> so. Well, you're only 66. Do you think you might get another name? Um, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> I think I have enough for now. And um, some people call me Afa, and some people call me Michael or Mike. My family still calls me Michael, so. Um, some of you may have been at uh, yesterday afternoon's talk um, when Afa spoke about holding space, creating spaces, a Southern Baptist embraces Taoism. Um, and I, I'm going to kind of pick up on some of the pieces that you, you left for us in that talk, which was really marvelous. Um, and it was in the, the seminary chapel. And um, Afa said in the talk at one point um, that you had decided at one point to be a minister, um, and that pleased your father greatly, but you didn't. Uh, but, but it felt like hearing a sermon yesterday a bit. So uh, maybe we'll hear another sermon today. Uh, well, <laughs> I'll try not to be didactic. No, know, not didactic. Or, just, or preachy, but no, yeah. yeah. Um, but you told us a bit about your early faith experiences uh, as a Southern Baptist and being baptized as a child. And I wanted to hear more about what it was like to grow up in East Baltimore. Um, you know, as a boy, uh, what was that neighborhood like and community and Mount Zion Baptist Church and um, some of those early, early experiences? Well, we moved into the house on Federal Street in a community that in later times was named Berea. And, uh, but we called it the Valley. And the elementary school that I attended was Fort Worthington. And um, according to some research I did, it was um, a storage house for military equipment way back, I think in the 1800s. But it's a huge stone building that sits atop a hill, and then there's a dip in small valley. And those houses were built around World War II or so, shortly after. And they were, um, you know, working class houses, or two of two family houses, and the, the second floor was um, a bedroom, a kitchen, and a living room. I was five years old when we moved there. It was um, the fall of 1957. My, on that birthday, I, I turned six years old, and I remember my first grade teacher, Mrs. Holt, and she was a very stern woman. And my world at that time, in the 1950s, you know, in Baltimore, you know, it was segregated, you know, and, but I didn't think of it that way. It was just the way the world was. and. Uh, we moved into that community and, and the remaining white families left very quickly. I don't even remember them very much at all. They left very quickly. And um, the church, Mount Zion Baptist, was about a 10 minute drive away on Caroline and Landville streets there in East Baltimore. 
And um, I went every Sunday, you know, I went to Sunday school and um, I was an usher, I had a badge, you know, and I served communion and so on. I was a very pious little boy, you know, the oldest in my family, oldest of five. And at that time, you know, African-American families um, moving up from the South had a kind of cooperative economic system inside the family. So my Aunt Bernice and my Uncle Willie, who were my father's side, was just my father's sister. They had a house on Biddle Street, which is no longer there. It was three stories. And so people would move up and sometimes stay briefly with them, then move on. On my mother's side, my great aunt Margaret was um, a matron. She and her husband didn't have kids of their own. Uncle Robert worked in a steel mill. When my mother and her sisters came up from Virginia, they stayed with Aunt Margaret. And um, when my father was dating my mother, he had to bring her back at a certain time to the house at a curfew, you know. And um, my father said, in those days, you didn't know whether the lady you were dating was a bear or a gorilla until you got married. And that was his way of talking about the codes of behavior in those days. And um, my father worked in the steel mill and I grew up um, on the weekends. My uncles would come by and they would sit around and have the table full of cheer, their drinks, you know, and my mother would make soup for them. And um, I studied very hard. School was my whole life, you know, and I wanted to do, do the best that I could, you know. And so <clears throat> the elementary school was around the corner. My parents went there and talked to the principal one day. I was in the sixth grade, and they came home and announced that I was going to skip the eighth grade. And so in 1963, that fall, the fall that President Kennedy was killed, I went to a mostly white, predominantly white junior high school as part of the um, movement toward integration and I skipped the eighth grade. And then my mother decided that I should go to an engineering high school, which was one of the probably the toughest public high school in Baltimore. And it produced a CEO of Procter & Gamble, among other things, other people, but it was all boys. You know, I wore a shirt and tie every day and caught the bus there, but that was still in East Baltimore. So it was um, a childhood of doing homework, you know, and I was in junior high and the counselor said to me, he said, you should play. So of course I was very scientific. I should play, right? <laughs> so I came home and I said, well, I'm going to play from seven o'clock to eight o'clock. You know, I come home, I had a schedule, you know, I was very, you know, I don't know, there are lots of words for what that is, but <laughs> I chose the word disciplined, you know, and so, and uh, as the oldest child um, in that situation, once I got into junior high school, my parents could not help me with my homework. You know, my father could have done some of the math fra fractions and so on, but I was doing algebra. And my mother went to the sixth grade, almost the seventh, my father, I think, finished the seventh grade. So I, that I had to figure out on my own, the French, you know. And I just love foreign languages, but I would have to do the conjugations and all those things by myself. So I became, um, I wasn't an autodidact, but I didn't have a system, of a support system inside my immediate family. And um, 
So I started in junior high school with about three or four hours of homework every night. And, um, and in order to get into the honor society, I had to have a hobby, so I took chess and so on to get into the honor society. <laughs> and in high school, it was photography, and that got me into the honor society there. But that engineering high school was pretty tough. And um, again, three, sometimes five hours of homework. And um, so by the time I got to the University of Maryland, I was 16 years old, no social skills whatsoever. I mean, dating, I had never been on a date, you know. I went from that to being married, you can imagine. <laughs> but, <laughs> you know, it was, um, the 1960s was a time of my adolescence. My 13th birthday was, um, uh, 1964, and um, and 1970 was my 19th birthday. So, my, the 1960s is a coterminous period with my adolescence. You know, so I went through the you know the challenges of being an adolescent who was unconscious of his own trauma in a time when the country was in turmoil. You know, and um, them, um, when Dr. King was killed in 1968, that's the year I graduated from high school. And I remember being inside, we had to stay in the house. There was a curfew and the military, and there was a Jeep with a 50 caliber machine gun in front of the house by the post office. And my grandmother and I, my, my grandmother couldn't walk. She had Huntington's, that's a whole other story. Huntington's doesn't happen in Africa, but my Irish great-grandfather brought that into that, you know. So, but uh, it was that whole ethos and uh, the Vietnam War and so on. But um, yeah, growing up in, uh, you know, in East Baltimore, my, we had so many cousins. They were a lot, my, mostly my playmates. I had friends too, but my mother's side of the family consisted of 12 siblings, as did my father's side, so 24 aunts and uncles, and then a legion of cousins, you know, so a small army. Yeah. And about half of them were born in Virginia, you know, about in a Brunswick County, which is 15 miles from North Carolina, and the rest of a smaller group of us were born in Baltimore and some in New York, but mostly they were born in what we refer to as the country. And Southern food and Southern language and idiom inside the home. So, you know, I would say, what y'all talking about, you know? What's going on in here? And I said, ain't your business. You know, somebody say, well, what are you doing? I said, minding my business and leaving yours alone. And so, <laughs> that was the language I grew up with. So in a sense, I felt when I got to school, of course, I couldn't, you know, I had to try to dress it up a bit, but <laughs> at home, that's how my parents, my family talked. Yeah. Uh, hearing you describe your childhood, um, I know your story that you had a lot of trauma in childhood as well, uh, and we may get there in the conversation. And of course, the country was experiencing communal trauma uh, in various ways. Um, but but it also sounds so idyllic too in in, in a lot of ways you know and and uh, your disciplined focus on education and and in some ways it's 
it feels to me as though the childhood would want to give our children minus the trauma. Um, but that's so instructive, I think, that what, what we think is perfection and what we want to give our children, you know, the big family and the southern food and church every Sunday, good education, it, it doesn't protect us from trauma. And it doesn't uh, shield us from the suffering of, of life, you know, and the four noble truths. And uh, maybe we'll get to the first noble truth here. Um, so uh, you started working at Procter & Gamble, is that right? Oh, actually, when I left the university, I went to the Bethlehem Steel Company, okay. Sparrows Point. Yeah. And then you were there for how long? Well, I had a grand design for my happiness, and so I um, joined the military. Mm -hmm. I mean, that was not something I had to do because it was the lottery system at that time, and my number was very safe. It was in the mm -hmm. 200s, but I had uh, three or four cousins who were in Vietnam, um, and I wanted to, you know, it was a... On one level, it was a um, working-class machismo kind of thing to do, and on another level, it was an early manifestation of trauma. I was very insecure about my own masculinity and didn't understand why. It was a matter of having to kill the lion, so to speak, you know. So I, there weren't many um, units open. As a matter of fact, there was only one unit open. It was an intelligence unit, Army Security Agency. And... Um, so I got into that, but I had to have an FBI clearance. So the FBI came through my neighborhood and my family, and I got a top secret clearance in order to get into the system. And then I became a cook, so I was a cook with a top secret clearance. <laughs> but um, so, but yeah, and then, so after the steel mill, I went there in May of 1970, and I got my orders to ship out for basic training in December. And so we, in my first marriage, we married uh, the day after Christmas. And on the 29th, I was in Fort Leonard Wood, Missouri, with my drill sergeant, who said he was now my family. Uh -oh. <laughs> I had no other family. He said, forget about it. You're with me now. <laughs> yeah. um, when you came back uh, from the war, you did uh, start working in the factory again. And you uh, also started writing poetry at night. Um, and you kind of became, I read an interview where you said you sort of became like the working class poet and you had some cachet among other young poets uh, as a result of that. I wonder if you could talk about that time. And, um, and maybe even uh, uh, Spirit Boxing has a lot of um, poems about, uh, you know, that, that whole period of time and uh, who you became there? Um. Well, you know, when I left the university, um, uh, one of the justifications I did was that I had read the autobiography of Malcolm X and I thought, well, if he could educate himself in prison, then I can finish this education in the factory, which was, that was a grand idea. <laughs> and why I would equivalent, um, you know, equate um, factory life with prison life, you know, I can talk a bit about that. Factories are kinds of prisons, but a trauma survivor likes enclosure. You know, I know that now in retrospect, enclosure and familiarity, things you can count on, you know. And so I retreated to that. 
and with the decision that I was, I said, I am a poet, I'm a writer of some sort, and so and that's what I did. But um, in 1974, I published a poem in the student journal at the University of Maryland, my first published poem. And in 1975, I gave a reading again at the University of Maryland. And um, by that time, I had gotten the job at Procter & Gamble. When I came back from basic training, I went to P&G and stayed there till 85, you know. And um, so my literary connections were in Washington, D.C. And in 1975, I met Ethelbert Miller, who was retired from Howard, but at that time he was Howard, at Howard, at the library working. And um, in Washington, D.C., I established myself as a poet, you know, and, and then in 1978, I started to do more of that in Baltimore, and I met Roger Kamenetz and Andre Kondrescu. So it was about 19, 1980 at that point, 78, 79, I'm trying to get the dates here, but in 79, I started a small press with James Taylor and David Baldwin. They had their presses, and they helped me write my articles of incorporation, and I applied for 501c3. And I worked overtime in, the, in, the, in Procter & Gamble in order to um, get the money for paper and printing costs, et cetera. Um, in the factory, um, I, I started two manuscripts in 1975, but I was on the packing floor. And um, I was working in the liquid um, detergent department for dishes. And so with all the moving machinery and so on, I couldn't get away to do a lot. But I, I uh, put in a bid for a job in the warehouse section. And in the warehouse, they said, that's where all the crazy guys worked, you know, they were renegades, were in the warehouse. <laughs> and so I went up to the warehouse in 75, and there was more open space there. And gradually, I got job titles in the warehouse where I had more freedom to ride around and work at night. So by 1978, I was um, a relief operator on the machines, 79 actually, and I could work the night shift from time to time, and I would take books to work with me and read. And um, I decided to finish up my bachelor's through an external degree program called the University of the State of New York, uh, Regents College, formed by the Regents of the Public Colleges and Universities in New York State. So, and then I, um, the other thing, I was pretty busy, <laughs> but um, I started freelancing for the Baltimore Sun. In 1980, Roger and his wife, Mara Crone, was a fiction writer. Um, they connected me with the editor of the op-ed page for the Morning Sun. The Sun paper in those days had two daily editions, morning and evening. So my first published piece, my first byline was in 1980 and I was working in the warehouse still. And um, it was an op-ed piece about the election, Reagan won, and I talked in it, and it was a, a kind of loosely researched <laughs> op-ed piece about the potential of the black church for influencing voting and how they could have helped, you know, make a difference. And, um, and um, on the job, I came to understand, I worked and working as I did with men who I say are like the core of the country's patriotic 
extreme. You know, these guys, like my father was a patriot, even given growing up as a sharecropper in very tough circumstances in, this, in Virginia, he's still a patriot, you know. And I said to him, I said, you know, the unions are going to suffer now. And I would argue with the guys, okay, you know, but you want to, and that's what happened. But some of that was the, what the unions brought on themselves, you know. But I, um, I kept, um, I kept that. That was writing for the Sun. I was publishing the magazine. I published Lucille Clifton, Kamiko Han, you know, um, Juan Felipe Herrera, who was just, he was young. I published him in that little magazine, and I started reviewing books for Andre's magazine, Exquisite Corpse, and um, I did that while I was working in the factory. And I started applying for the National Endowment for the Arts, and I got turned down tw twice, I believe. I even applied for a Guggenheim. I just got a Guggenheim last year, and was like, oh, I was embarrassed to tell people how long I had been applying for it. But, <laughs> but I was so happy. Ed Hirsch was happy for me, too. He gave me a big hug. Ed's a friend of mine. So, um, but yeah, it's, I applied for the Guggenheim when I was working in the warehouse. But in 1984, you know, I, um, as part of the, um, I was doing op-eds and I graduated to feature stories, you know, I did a feature story, a couple of those for the Sun Mag Sunday Magazine section of the paper. So I, got, I developed a portfolio, I, I, I kept a portfolio of my publications and uh, including the poetry magazine, et cetera, and used that as part of my application for my bachelor's. But I applied for Brown University in 1984, and I was in the warehouse in the recreation room, and I told the guys, I said, I applied to Brown University. They laughed. They said, you're crazy. You know? they, said, you, they said, you're going to die in here with the rest of us. I said, no, I'm not. <laughs> <laughs> and I had applied for the NEA again, too, and I was negotiating with Charles Ryle to have my first book published through Calhoun at the University of Virginia Press. All of that was going on, and, and then in January 1985, the acceptance letter for the uh, NEA fellowship came, and um, uh, my second marriage had, was gone by that time I had left my wife, and I was living with my father, and I went upstairs and I saw the letter, I said, oh, another rejection, you know, and I opened it up, and I said, oh my God, <laughs> you're going to give me an NEA. And I went downstairs, I said, Pop, look what I got. And I was always, as they say in my family, into something, you know. And <laughs> he said, what have you done now? And he was shaking, you know. <laughs> he was making breakfast there in the kitchen. He said, what have you done now? I said, Pop, I got $20,000 from the government. And he started shaking more. He said, for what? He said, boy, you have to pay that money back. And I, said, <laughs> I said, it's for poetry, Pop. He said, poetry? <laughs> I said, I'm going to quit that job now. He said, you can't quit that job. What are you talking about? He was so upset with me for years, you know. And uh, it was only when I got the tenure track job at Rutgers and got health insurance, he said, well, okay, you know. So <laughs> never mind the poetry, you know. But uh, so I called the uh, personnel office at, uh, at P&G, and I said, well, I want to retire. <laughs> and uh, they said, well, if you want your four weeks of vacation, you have to come in and work one day. And that's what I did. I came in and walked around with a broom for a day. And 
my supervisor, Lynn Matrosini, who later passed away. He was a nice guy. He said, I'm going to get something out of you today, your last day. He teased me, but it was very hard to leave. Mm. And um, it's like on that film, Shawshank Redemption, you know, and uh, you, I was just, part of me, I was just like, oh, I got to get out of here. But when the day came, I just wept all the way out the gate. It was so hard to leave, you know, so it was all I knew. Um, that's such an interesting description of the factory as a place of um, wounded, but also like protected masculinity and uh, camaraderie and um, care. Uh, even in, in under circumstances, the you know factory production, which is really somewhat dehumanizing of the body, and um, I wonder if you would read a poem from Spirit Boxing. You have a number of poems about uh, the kind of masculinity of the factory, and uh, if any of them strike you. Oh well, that's uh, I work with combat veterans, and um, I had. I was a non-combat veteran with PTSD, but I had some guys who were there who were, had been to Vietnam and World War II and Korea. And, um, and there were also men there who were gay and bisexual and so on and so on. But, so I'll read 46, I think, page 46. And um, I suppose I should put on my glasses. I have them in my pocket. Hold on, those for you. Okay. And this one is entitled, When Hard Men Love Each Other. Sitting beside each other, flying to Alaska on vacation, their rifles in the cargo of a plane ahead of them, in the thick of trees, a bear, alone in their sights, their two breaths, one, hushed into a harmony by the need to feel the feeling of being men, rocked into strength like mysteries that kill lions with bare hands, hearts that love wives and children from inside the hardness, pacing the corridors at work, riding tow motors that can crush as well as pack what is soft, flesh or cartons, mush of liquid soap spills in inventory, floors full of downy fabric softener or gurneys full of machines and men gone mad the way factories explode and burn us. My Uncle Paul turned to overdone bacon. My cousin loving him with hands trying to put out the fire, heat like the Sahara where workers chased Rommel came home to work, make soap, and remember the wars. Taking showers and gasoline in a decade when we lined up for the oil embargo. These men, we who made America, gave it all a man can give, forgave it when it took all we had and left us to love each other, some in clandestine rooms where one could open his soft endings to take in what the other wanted to give, a filling, they're stationed the hidden place on a cross made in rooms that dreamed of factories to be perfect unions of the rough and soft. Our days now, eight hours, shifts, and lifetimes. I love that line, perfect union of the rough and soft. Um, 
And it, was it there that someone gave you the, the copy of the Tao Te Ching? Is that where you first uh, began your exploration of Taoism? I was on the packing end of the, of the uh, plant at that time. And um, uh, I must say that at that time in American history, it was what labor historians call the end of the golden age of capitalism. There were a lot of us who had dropped out of the college and universities, and some guys were finishing up their bachelors. While, so the education level of the American workforce had risen to that point at that time. And John was his name, gave me my first copy of the Tao Te Ching in 1973 when I came back to the job from being hospitalized. I had a uh, breakdown when after the child died. So when I came back, John gave me that book. Yeah. Um, I wanted to ask about your own meditation practice. So you've had a, a long Taoist uh, meditation practice. Um, what does that look like for you on a daily basis? And then also uh, you mentioned yesterday that meditation, uh, it's, it is a healing process, but it is also a process that reactivates trauma. And I think... Um, Sometimes we have a very superficial understanding of meditation that we think it's wholly good or, you know, wholly beneficial. Um, and uh, I wonder if you could just talk a bit more about the complexity of that for you. Um, the Tao meditation, as opposed to the um, Buddhist, the Taoist is more involved with um, engaging um, your thoughts with your um, actual physical or physiological functioning, all right? And, um, well, to describe the actual event as it may happen on any given day, so I'll, I have a poet cave in the basement of the house where we live now, we just moved to this. Uh, I'm sorry, a poet cave? A poet cave. Okay, I just wanted to get that on the record. Yeah, Chris is laughing because she knows, but the poet cave. And um, so I'll go down there and um, I face, always face the sun, even in the evening when it's going, because the energy from the sun is beneficial. And the optimum times for meditation are about five to seven in the morning and 11 to one in the um, afternoon, morning, morning, afternoon. But any time you can, but... Um, and so I'll go down there and during the week uh, for about an hour or so, and um, or a little more at times. And on Sunday, when it's quiet, I'll do about two hours or so. And um, the Taoist meditation is um, one where you come to understand that um, in the same way that the mind forms an image of, say, a house that someone wants to build, and the house you know, becomes a reality. Um, the mind can also form a, an, an image of, say, your heart, and uh, produce a physical effect on your heart. You know, In a way that uh, imaging is used sometimes now in athletic training, right? or in military training, um, and, it, and some aspects of military training, they tell them to imagine the targets hit, etc. You know. Um, but um, don't want to go into that too deeply, right? Leave that military stuff alone. But 
um, the mind can affect the body, and then you come to understand it's one system, you know. And so from there you move, um, and the enhanced, enhanced functioning of your physiological system produces um, a gradual um, clarity and stability of the mind, but it will also bring back memories, you know. And you have an intense experiencing of your physical self, you know, right down to the nervous system, right? So I stay in touch with my teacher by email. <laughs> he lives in Baltimore. He's, from, he's Chinese from Malaysia. I see him. He says, uh, I said, let him know how I'm doing, you know. And um, I saw him last Sunday for his birthday. We went to Baltimore for his 70th birthday. He looked at me and said, he's all right, you know. <laughs> so, but um, you know, um, I, I you know I don't have a community. I have a couple other disciple brothers and sisters who do meditation, but I'm the one who just actually does it every day. Um, but there's no hall that I sit in, and none of that. And um, I do the meditation. I, I but um, I also read the Bible, you know, and. Um, get a greater understanding, you know, and even comfort from reading certain things and my own perspective. And so uh, that's what I can tell you. That's what I can tell you about the Taoist meditation. It's, uh, you come to understand the body is a womb for the spirit, a womb for the spirit. And um, it's like a flower, you know, incarnation as I understand it. Is like a flower, you know, we are a seed, and from that we develop a physical body. And so from the seed, the manifestation of the physical in this part of, the, of life, you know. And the origin of the seed is like, it's like questioning the unknowable, you know. And um, so I come to understand that God gives me the ability to meditate, you know, and uh, the ability to form those images and focus, etc., is my experience of the divine working in me. And um, when it's all over, that's where I will go back to mm. when it's done. So, but um, that's it. Well, you know, that's not it, but. Sure. <laughs> <laughs> um, do you think it was important that you had a teacher? Uh, as you're learning how to meditate, um, it, someone to guide you through that process? It is important. It is important to have that, you know, um, I have, you have to study anatomy. You have to know where the pineal gland is, for example, or the pituitary, and you have to know the difference between the renal and the kidney, where it's, because you have to Im image those things, and you can't do the wrong points, mm. you know, and... Um, and um, you have to, um, and if you don't do things the way you should, you know, you could adversely affect yourself. Mm -hmm. Could adversely affect your heart rhythm or your blood pressure if you don't do it the way you're supposed to do it, mm -hmm. you know. And um, so, and meditation has different levels. There's a basic and then there are more advanced things that he only teaches. And then there's advanced, advanced, but I don't know. So uh, it is important, 
and to have someone um, teach you because you cannot learn from books. You know, it is so experiential. There's no book that can tell you, well, this is what you're going to do, you know. There is a book called Cultivating Stillness, which is a translation by Eva Wong of a primary text used in Taoism. But you will, you know, as the years have gone by, I've understood certain things, but there's no order to the book per se. Things happen in, in different ways. And the metaphors that are given for colors, et cetera, are for a certain perception. But for Westerners, I, you know, for myself, Maybe it's not where I can't speak for anyone except myself. I I take just basic English terminology, you know, and so the heart is the heart is not some golden flower in, in the Grand Canyon, you know. The heart is the heart, you know. Never mind the metaphor, you know. Um just before we, we started talking here, uh you and I were talking about the figure of the Bodhisattva. Uh, in Buddhism, and um, your uh, first poem in the government of nature, um, you mentioned the Bodhisattva, and I'm thinking about um, this idea of the teacher and you know uh, the way of Taoism, um, meditation, and like how we come to know what we know about suffering, about our own experience. Um, I'm going to ask you to read again. That's why I'm getting this this out. Um, Buddha reveals the apocalypse to the cowboy. Uh, and you mentioned here the bodhisattva figure. So I wonder if you would um, talk to us about what, what that is, the bodhisattva, um, and then uh, who the bodhisattvas have been for you in your life. Oh, well, I, I have to um, mention Professor George Bass, who passed away in 1990, he was my mentor in graduate school at Brown, and he suffered, you know, and um, he died early, he was 52, but he suffered. He had some powerful forces working inside of him. And I just want to acknowledge him as I, in that. And when I started um, writing The Government of Nature, I was living in Taiwan on sabbatical, 2004, 2005, and, um, I, I moved over there to study Mandarin in a private school because I started studying Mandarin. I did two years as a faculty audit at Simmons with um, two of my colleagues. And the first teacher, um, I think, is my more favorite, more thorough, and he said he was using the grandfather method. And we had dictionary drills. so. Chinese, you know, I did all three levels, which moves more slowly, the speaking, the reading, and the writing, and you have to learn how to use the dictionary. And so you have to be able to look at a Chinese character and know whether it's to simplify the jintitsa or the old style fantitsa. And so to look at that character and look at, find the radical component, count the strokes in it and go to the dictionary and find the radical component. So he gave us three minutes to find these characters. It was grueling. And um, the textbooks were from mainland, so they were simplified. So I moved to Taiwan, and in the spring, a friend who runs a monastery there asked me to come and teach Tai Chi to the nuns, which was an ordeal. But <laughs> he said, we'll help you uh, with your Chinese woman, Bang Juni. And I said, yeah, sure. <laughs> 
They didn't help me very much at all. But it, 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 it's called Hernan Temple and Monastery in Hualien on the east coast of Taiwan. It's a beautiful place. And it's about maybe 150 yards from the ocean, the, the Pacific. So you're sitting there facing California, you know. And um, at the top of the hill is Guanyin, you know, who did everything necessary for him, was enlightened, but decided to sit at the gates of heaven to help human beings, you know. And so for me, that's the personage I was thinking of, you know, the idea of having done all of that work, which is an enormous amount of work to get through that, and then say, no, I'll just sit here and be a light for human beings. And so there are points where, you know, the path, there are many paths, you know, but there is this one saying that somewhere along the line, there are people like, um, the entities like Guan Yin, and a certain point in your meditation level, you will, um, there's one who sits there and bangs a drum, you know. And so one day I emailed my teacher, I said, I think I heard a drum. He said, that was the house making, <laughs> making a noise. He is so practical. And he's like, get out of here. That was the house pipe knocking. So, <laughs> so much for that. But I was thinking of Guan Yin when I put that inscription there. And, and the cowboy is my uncle. You know, uh, the, my uh, main perpetrator passed away. Would you read it for us? Buddha reveals the apocalypse to the cowboy with a quote from 1 Corinthians 14.33, God is not the author of confusion. The harness comes tight up under the throat, whistle caught the air, the desert tightens a howl and hot dust without air. The single hairs on your arm at night, the pages in the book that will write itself in your grave, your bones turning with the embryos still caught, a peculiar failure of the body that makes sages weep, no mesh for the night of death to keep the maggots away. No gathering of prayers in the loom that moves the veil between here and there, the gate where bodhisattvas sit to counsel the desperate, their song something you take as fool's gold, rolling last chances, throwing them back to the mixing bowl, sitting somewhere in a continuum of space and time. Your father was his grandfather, the man on the running board of the 1940s Chevrolet, when America dreamed its highways, the connection that bound us to desert fruit. As you built your own ultimatums, no way to see the engine of what drove you to speak holy names as convenience. No sense of samadhi, no sense of lying down to let wrong write itself on the heart's tablet exercise this thing in you, a mutated ambition, you the sun of the morning light. Thank you. Um, you started talking about um, learning uh, Chinese and the characters, and I know you do a lot of work with translation now. Um, 
Would you talk about translation as a spiritual practice? Um, and maybe like uh, the limits of translation, you know, uh, what of the sacred cannot be translated? Or how do you think about translation with regard to your spirituality? Uh, translation um, and spirituality, I think translation is essential. And um, it's, a translator is a different person than an interpreter, you know. And I don't, they're equally as important and perhaps equally as difficult, you know, to interpret meaning, to be able to communicate on the spot, you know, and have someone understand what the other person is saying. Um, I convened two conferences with Chinese poets as an extension of my work in the full, for the Fulbright. So in 2004, I brought poets to uh, Simmons where I was teaching in Boston for three days, and they came from mainland Taiwan and Hong Kong. And some of them had never seen each other, you know, and there were different political positions there and so on, and some um, um, people were expats, you know, from the Tiananmen incident. So there was, there was a lot of potential for conflict there, but it was all good, it was all good. And um, the second time was in 2008, and then I focused on translation as a means of cultural communication. So my model for that conference was, and this, you know, Simmons was the only place in the country where these kinds of conferences have taken place, you know. And um, the model was to have a Chinese poet, a translator, and then an American poet. But I said to them, I said, I want you to just dwell in the space of the translation and talk to one another about things relating to this particular piece. And I don't want you to rush. And so don't stand up and say, Afa, when we finish, and then what do they do? Afa, we're finished. <laughs> but um, that is something that I wish I could do again, you know, because it's so important. Now, translation itself, uh, you look at a poem in, in, in Chinese or in another language, or I look at it, and I try to um, step away from my own sense of myself as a poet because I don't want to impose that on the, on the text itself. But Chinese and English are, and the sensibilities of the culture with the language or at times so seemingly, or maybe even really oppositional, you know. And, um, uh, you know, so if you're writing a poem, you want to tell someone, uh, uh, ask you in Chinese, well, what are you doing? Uh, what are you doing? And you say, well, I'm writing poetry. You would say, which means I am in the writing of poetry. <laughs> and so, that's fairly easy to translate, but the, the idea of being inside an act, you know, is a little different from saying, I am doing the act. And so when I got to Taiwan, my uh, teacher said to me, she said, Chinese doesn't have grammar, we sort of invented for you guys. I'm like, okay. And she said, we have structure, and not grammar in a grammatical sense. So they have a whole vocabulary of grammatical terms. But there is a place in Chinese, in the study of Chinese, 
And for me, it's a study of Chinese culture as well. There's a chasm where you have to have a leap of faith because things will not cohere. I mean, you will not find a match on the other side. Right? And I went back and forth. I, was, I spent two summers, 2007, 2009, in Taiwan. I went to conferences. I lived over there, traveled in mainland. And um, the last time I spent uh, a summer there, 2009, I came back. And I was sitting in the airport in Los Angeles feeling totally alienated. And I felt because it was a physical feeling, you know. And I said, this is what I go through. I can imagine what my Chinese friends go through. And some of them experience deep depression. You know, come here and it's just so different, you know. And I decided, well, maybe I should just stay home for a while, you know. And I had even thought, well, maybe I have to do one. I have to live here or I have to move. You know, and um, having said that, my Chinese is very bookish, you know, it's, uh, so, um, you know, you can say Chinese is Zhongwen or Hanyu, you know, and so, what a Hanyu, how Shang Kerbin the Hanyu, so my Chinese is like textbook Chinese, right? So the kids can talk all around me, you know, the jargon, et cetera, and they, when they use their cell phones, they'll take characters and make puzzles out of them. It's like, you know. So, and I tell people it's equivalent to teaching someone English and then dropping them off in the Bronx with a bunch of teenagers. You know, and so and there are different levels of learning language. You know, so. I love what you say about um, dwelling in the translation together. And uh, it sounds similar to something you said yesterday about um, your practice of Taoist meditation, which it, it allows you to hold the space for the contradictions of your own life. Um, and a kind of like translating maybe the, the opposites in our own lives, like within the space of ourselves. So I like that. Um, we're running close to time here. I want to make sure to uh, get in a couple final questions. Um, who are you reading now? I know you're an elder with Kaveh Kanam. You're the first elder with Kaveh Kanam, and you have a, um, a strong mentoring role with many young poets. Who are you reading now you're really excited about uh, that you want to tell us about? Uh, well, I'm, I'm reading on Darrell Harris's new book. And Darrell is um, a very interesting younger poet. And uh, she looks to me for guidance, et cetera. But she took over the magazine that I once edited, Obsidian, uh, which was based at North Carolina State. And uh, her new book is, I think, very interesting. It's about intersectionality and the body. Um, Durrell studied acting at, at, at Yale, among other things. So um, and I think it's, it's one of her books, this is probably the most lyrical that I've seen. So I'm interested, I'm really, excited about her book and um, I have um, one of my students from Rutgers, you know, Ernest Hilbert, is uh, Ernest German-American background and um, Ernest is determined to sort of wring a new metric out of contemporary um, American language and uh, he has a book of sonnets that I think is just lovely, you know, and so and then, of course, there are names that some people will recognize, but I thought I would talk about Darrell and Ernie, you know, because um, they're not as well known as, 
Terrence, Terrence Hayes, Major Jackson, Natasha Trethaway, Kevin Young, I know them all. Kevin's the editor of the New Yorker now, so they're on their own. But I wanted to just talk, just say Darrell and Ernest Hilbert, yeah, Darrell Harris. Yeah. Um, so my final question, uh, so there was this show that some of you may remember, it may still be on, Inside the Actors Studio. Do you know what I'm talking about? James Lipton. Okay, and um, he had a question that he would ask at the end of every interview with actors, uh, which is, if God exists, and when you get to heaven, uh, what do you want God to say to you? Uh, well, I want God to say to me that it's okay that when I was about three years old, I took a can of coffee and put it into my mother's cake mix, so. <laughs> I wasn't anticipating that. <laughs> <laughs> that bothers me. Huh? <laughs> it's still. <laughs> Big thanks to Arthur Weaver and Serena Moore for these winsome words. Rewrite Radio is a production of the Calvin Center for Faith and Writing, located on the campus of Calvin College in Grand Rapids, Michigan. Theme music is June 11th by Andrew Starr. You can find more information about the center and its signature event, the Festival of Faith and Writing, online at ccfw.calvin.edu and festival.calvin.edu and on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Subscribe to Rewrite Radio on iTunes and leave us a review to let us know you're listening. Stay tuned for more from the Festival's archives. <laughs>